Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 143, The Road to Moscow. When we left off from Army Group Center, its more northern panzer units had attacked and subdued Polotsk and Vitebsk on July 8th along the Davina River from the rear as they had crossed the waterway further upriver. While Army Group Center's more center thrust, having left Minsk, then crossed the Berezina River and moved on, after bloodying most of the Moscow 1st Mechanized Division at Borisov. Guderian had been impressed with the large Russian KB tanks and sent a few back to Berlin to be copied. But any concrete results from that would be a few years down the road. Guderian then moved east, slowly but steadily. This was not his nature, but there had always seemed to be more and more Soviet forces before him. None had been expected after leaving Minsk. As for Army Group Center's southern, or right flank, the German units there found less resistance, but had to deal with Russian roadways that were anything but. Bridges were either destroyed by the Russians as they retreated, but equally so, the wooden structures simply collapsed after trying to accommodate the heavy weapons. So the German soldiers and tanks of Armour Group Center moved on, ever eastward. Stalin still believed that the best defense was offense, but he found himself, instead of ordering bold counterattacks, sending his armies in almost piecemeal just to keep a defensive cohesion to the west and east of Smolensk, as it was on the path to Moscow. Yet before realizing his mistake in tactics, he had gotten the chance to launch a counterattack at General Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group, as they were up north, approaching Polotsk and Vitebsk. Yet as we have seen, the Russians mounting a campaign with 2,000 tanks and several rifle divisions, caved into the well-coordinated, efficient German fighting tactics within five days. Some 800 Russian tanks had been destroyed, while thousands of accompanying riflemen were lost. The survivors fell back, starting on July 11th, heading in the direction of Smolensk. Meanwhile, a bit further south, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group crossed the Dnieper on July 10th, where it met the Russian 13th Army, or rather, what was left of it, having escaped the Minsk pocket, or German Kiel. But the Russians had only the remains of four rifle divisions and no armor, Guderian was able to do his bloody work effectively. The 13th's new commander, General Remenzov, was brushed aside with his men by the 13th of July. Guderian's 46th Panzer Group was able to bypass on the northern side of Mogilev, itself some 40 miles south of Orsha. Orsha was practically on a straight line in between Minsk and Smolensk. But it would get worse for the Russian 13th. At the same time, Guderian's 24th Panzer Corps swung south of Mogilev, which meant that the 61st Rifle and the 20th Mechanized Corps, still in Mogilev, were now trapped. That the Soviet units were now behind Guderian's most forward panzers was not good enough for Guderian. 
The Russian forces, ironically now trapped on the western side of the Dnieper, had to be removed before they could offer up a further threat to what was becoming the second panzer group's rear. So the tanks turned and focused on the trapped men, who fought valiantly, but had little in the way of weapons and supplies to start out with. Still, they held out for two weeks before no longer being considered a threat to Guderian's further advance. Further north, near Vitesk, the situation was just as bad for the Russians. Sending in Lieutenant General Kodnev's 19th Army, the Stavka had them starting engaging Reinhardt's 39th Motorized Corps from the moment they left the trains that had brought them to this new front. But Reinhardt's tanks and motorized infantry was ready for the Russians, who were not so well equipped. In a double blow to Central Russia's defense, Guderian's 29th Motor Infantry Division was only 11 miles from Smolensk by July 13th, and Konev's 19th Army was mostly wiped from the face of the earth. With the way to Moscow opening up far too quickly for Stalin, a series of unrealistic orders for counterattacks were issued. The Stavka wanted the entire Western Front to go on the defensive, yet this required, beyond courage, supplies, adequate weapons, ammunitions, logistics, transportation. The Russians mostly had the courage. Zhukov ordered the 22nd, 19th, 20th, 13th, or what was left of it, the 4th and the 21st armies from Vitesk to Gomel in the south, a stretch of some 250 miles, or 402 kilometers, to attack. But he wanted coordinated attacks, which again requires solid communication and intelligence. But there was not enough radios for the former, nor enough planes for the latter. Still, those Russian men gave a good account of themselves in their final days. The Russian 4th and 13th armies, those of the 13th not trapped at Mogilev, hit the 4th Panzer Division on their right flank near the Sos River, hoping to give the trapped men a chance to escape. It failed as much as all the other offensives, but their courage ripped from the Germans' admiration. Years later, Guderian wrote of Timoshenko's offensive, as he called it, quote, Some 20 enemy divisions moved against the right flank of my panzer group, while the Russians encircled in Mologev and Orsha attempted simultaneously to break out, with the obvious objective of belatedly frustrating our successful crossing of the Dnieper. This was Guderian's cold and clinical assessment of an obvious move by the enemy, but the Russians did cause some confusion. Some of the trapped 13th got out, though 35,000 more Russian POWs were added to the tally, and some elements of Guderian's group were pushed back. They were able to retake all lost territory within the week, but more time was used up. General Winter was coming, now just one week closer. Guderian, being the professional he was, stayed focused on the goal during this latest ordeal, Smolensk. Russian counterattacks were dealt with, and then he drove his men east, 
and although a professional, it was time for a gamble. Ever since leaving Minsk, the German panzer units found themselves being spread further apart. This wasn't the countryside of France. The Russian land before them went on and on. The effect of this weakened the very nature of massed armor and made them susceptible to counterattacks. Guderian pulled in his tanks into fewer but stronger groups and prepared for a thrust at Smolensk. On came Guderian and Hoth to the north. Lemelson's 47th Motorized Corps moved east in between these two from Orsha for support, with two more panzer divisions behind him. And there were other panzer divisions just to their south, protecting this center assault's right flank, along with the Gross Deutschland Infantry Regiment and the SS Reich Motorized Division. Once most of the German units were in place, the attack on Smolensk commenced, or rather, the attack and encirclement of Smolensk. General Hoth and Reinhardt advanced, coming at the town, while staying to the north of the town to get in behind it from above, was the 20th and 7th Panzer Divisions. In response, the Stavka ordered Lukin's 16th Army though weakened, to defend Smolensk, and sharing this unenviable task was also the weakened 20th and 19th armies. As Guderian had more armor than Hoth, his armor approached the city, yet there were not enough tanks to encircle it and join up with Hoth's tanks to the north. Hoth had allowed his tanks to go too far to the north, so were of no help in the battle over the city. Guderian, for now, would have to go it alone. His 29th Motorized Division moved in and soon engaged in house-to-house fighting. The 18th Panzer was thrown in to help, but by now only had 12 operational tanks, which brought to the fore what the 18th Commander said just days earlier, that our losses have to stop if we do not intend to win ourselves to death. But then came the diverging goals of those on the German side. Hitler, Kluge, and Hoth wanted to secure the armored seal behind Smolensk and then begin destroying as many Russian soldiers as they could, whereas Guderian, nicknamed Fast Heinz, was already looking past the fall of the city. So, since his 10th Panzer Division further east towards the Desna River to secure a bridgehead at Elnia, to the southeast of Smolensk. So with the Germans attacking Smolensk, while other forces tried to finish off the enclosure to the city's east, the aggressors, for the moment, weren't moving east. Zukov saw this as a real opportunity. He could not let those three armies, the 16th, 19th, and 20th, in Smolensk, be captured or destroyed along with the city. For now, right now, those men and the city would serve as bait. Besides, losing those soldiers would simply give the Russians fewer men to defend the approaches to Moscow. So on July 20th, Zhukov ordered the Western Front, after it was strengthened by four armies from the reserve forces, to attack the Germans around the city. If all went according to plan, the three armies would be saved 
along with the city, and the German advance halted, far from Moscow. But nothing ever goes according to plan in battle, because the other side has their plans. Timoshenko was ordered to form four forces, each one named after its commander, the 29th, the 30th, the 24th, and the 28th. But then Zukov had a fifth scratched-together army created and ordered them to all head west towards the Germans and to spread out as they did to engage as many of the enemy forces as possible. On July 21st, the largest Russian counter-assault to date commenced. From Belly, just northeast of Vitebsk, to Roslov, some 80 miles to the south of Smolensk, the Russians surged at the Germans. Hoping not to repeat the ad nauseum times, the Soviets attacked in an uncoordinated fashion. The Stavka pulled out all the stops to make sure the Germans were hit evenly so no one force could come to the aid of another. Yet, it was not meant to be. But there was more cohesion than ever before. The Russians came on, unevenly, but in large numbers. And sometimes, having more men than the enemy has shells or bullets, pays off. On came the scratch force under Rokossovsky from the northeast of Smolensk. Though bombed again and again by the Luftwaffe, his men engaged the 7th Panzer Division, slugged it out from July 18th to the 23rd, and then, somehow, managed to go on the offensive on the 24th. And during all this time, Rokossovsky kept in decent contact with the trapped Russian forces within the target city. The other four groups hit the Germans closer to Smolensk, which gave the men within the city a reprieve. This allowed them to organize themselves under Colonel General Korochkin, and thus organized, they fought to keep a corridor open to the east, should the need arise. Yet despite their best efforts, by July 26th, the 39th Panzer Corps' 20th Motorized Division of 3rd Panzer Group and the 17th Panzer Division of the 2nd Panzer Group linked up further east. The corridor of Korochkin's men itself was surrounded. But then, the German units of the encirclement on its north, east, and south sides were hit by Soviet counterattacks. Now it was the elements of the German circle itself that had enemy forces around it. Elements of the 3rd Panzer Group tried to break itself out through the scratch force, but they were easily halted by artillery and a few KV-1 tanks. The panzers of the 7th and 29th Panzer Divisions weren't going anywhere, for now. The Soviets' limited success here had more to do with the stress on the German logistics line and their inability to move around due to bad or non-existent roads. As for the Soviets, much more could have been accomplished had they had adequate firepower. Not as in more than expected, but simply as much as they should have had, based on formations. Furthermore, the Soviets had practically no logistics, bringing them more ammunition. For them, it truly was a come-as-you-are party. Still, they did well, considering. 
By the end of July, Guderian sensed that the Russians had lost momentum, so counterattacked the biggest formation threatening them in their area, Group Kachalov, the 28th Group. Moving south of Smolensk, the 24th Motorized Corps hit the tired and now less supplied Soviets and practically wiped out the force in a matter of days. Once again, the Germans won, after losing men and machines. The Russians had lost so much more, obviously, but the Germans were being whittled down. Guderian's smashing success not only allowed them to move east if they wanted, but they could have also moved south and come at Kiev. During this time, it was still being defended, based on Stalin's orders. Moscow still believed that the Germans' main interest was in driving east towards the capital, but Hitler was now focused on a sub-goal, given what had happened around Smolensk. Directive 33 of July 19th said that those German forces in the area were to prevent the escape of large enemy forces into the depths of the Russian territory and to annihilate them. The man had become exasperated with all those Soviet armies that weren't supposed to be there. They weren't supposed to exist. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. And what would Army Group North be doing while this concentrated slaughtering was going on? A supplemental directive answered that. Leningrad was to be captured before Moscow was invested. In order to do this, 3rd Panzer Group was to turn and drive north to be a part of Army Group North until the fall of Leningrad. But then a decision was reached in Berlin. Exactly when or by what data, no one can expressly say. But that decision changed the war against the Soviet Union and the outcome of World War II. On July 30th, the day before Guderian's troops wiped out one of the five Russian formations blocking their path, Hitler issued Directive Number 34. In part, it read, The course of events in recent days, the appearance of large enemy forces before the front, the supply situation, and the necessity of giving the 2nd and 3rd Panzer Groups 
10 days to restore and refill their formations, has forced a temporary postponement of the fulfillment of aims and missions set forth in Directive No. 33 of July 19th and the addendum to it of July 23rd. Army Group Center will go on the defensive while employing the most favorable terrain in its sector. You should occupy favorable jumping-off positions for conducting subsequent offensive operations against the Soviet 21st Army, and you can carry out limited objective offensive operations to this end. As soon as the situation permits, the 2nd and 3rd Panzer Groups are to be withdrawn from battle and quickly refilled and re-equipped. In other words, the road to Moscow was not yet open, despite Army Group Center having destroyed so many forces before it. For now, Germany's advance would be against Leningrad and Kiev in the Ukraine. There would be no further attacks east of Smolensk for two months. And by then, the world, at least that part of it, between Army Group Center and Moscow, would have changed significantly. But continuing on with his string of bad decisions, Stalin, instead of establishing a series of defensive lines, chose to continue counterattacking those German forces east of Smolensk. Yet they would find the Germans were equally capable of defending themselves from attack. Army Group North Finnish forces were coming as close to Leningrad from the north as they wanted to. This was not their fight, after all. Meanwhile, Army Group North was coming ever closer from the south. As we have seen, the Luga line to the southwest of the city had been breached in mid-August. And now that it was, the Germans' idea was to link up with the Finnish forces, who had been bribed with food for their people to come around Lake Ladoga, somewhere on its southern side. But General Lieb found it prudent to order a major push just south of Lake Ilmen, which gave his men more breathing room, but weakened Germany's thrust at Leningrad proper. By August 27th, German forces were only 40 kilometers south and 100 kilometers southwest of Leningrad. It was then that the Stavka sent in three fresh armies, the 52nd, 54th, and the 4th, from the east, passing by the city of Volkhov, just south of Lake Ladoga, and crossing the river of that same name. The idea was for these armies to make sure the German and Finnish forces did not link up east-northeast of the city. But enough of that. Lieb, the commander of Army Group North, was ready to take Leningrad. Since Barbarossa had begun, most of it had gone Lieb's way. The worst parts, besides the recent past, were waiting for supplies and for the infantry to catch up. In other words, frustrating, but successful. And now, this was the time for his greatest moment as a German officer and commander, to achieve his group's paramount aim. Truly, it was the beginning of the end. Lieb ordered the newly arrived 39th Motorized Corps of General Schmidt from Army Group Center 
to join up with his 16th Army's 1st and 28th Army Corps. They were to enter Leningrad from the Leningrad-Moscow road to the southeast. To make sure the Russians would not be able to focus their defense on a single point, Lieb would also have Hopner's Panzer Group attack from the south, while Kukler's 18th Army hit it from the west. It was the job of Bush's 16th Army, or what was left of it, after losses and other units being lent out, to protect Hopner's right flank in the south. The German troops were, like Lieb, sensing the end. By now, many, if not all of them, had experienced terrifying moments as the seemingly countless Russians threw themselves at the invaders. And many had, by now, lost friends. This was about to be over. But the timeless concept of payback lingered in many German minds. It's possible that many of the Russian defenders felt the same way. The end was near for them and for the city behind them. Because at that moment in late August, the defense of Leningrad to the south was sketchy at best. The 8th Army of this Leningrad front, the area had been renamed as Stalin and the Stavka reorganized its defenses, yet most of this was only done on paper so far, was positioned to the west of the city. It was hardly better equipped than most Soviet forces. The Luga Defense Group, lacking the 41st Rifle Corps, it was still mostly surrounded south at Krasnog Vardesk, the city itself south of Leningrad, was positioned in the Kradnovardisk region proper, some 65 miles southeast of Leningrad. To the east-southeast of this, just across the Volkhov River, was the bloodied 48th Army. This led the Novgorod Army Group, or NAG, to screen the Volkhov River, which ran from its namesake south-southwest to Lake Ilmen. The situation for now, to the north of Leningrad, was stagnant. The Finns were happy with the status quo, the Russians content with that for the moment. But it was time. Schmidt's 39th Motor Corps came at the 48th Army's position on the far side of the Volgov River, to the southeast of Leningrad. It easily pushed the disorganized Soviet force east and south, which was its objective if the Germans could not destroy it outright. By August 25th, the area around Chudovo, on the western side of the Volkov, still southeast of Leningrad, was in German hands. Yet the Russians had shown themselves, time and again, if not able, but certainly willing, to counterattack once the Germans stopped an assault. So Schmidt had the 18th Motorized Division continue on in a northeasterly direction, the 12th Panzer continue west, and the 20th Motorized northwest. If this worked, the outer Russian defensive line would be that much farther away from Leningrad, while those Soviet units close to it would be pushed closer to the city on its southeastern front. They could be dealt with later, when the city was invested. The commander of the Leningrad front, Popov, tried to close this ever-winding gap 
to the south-southeast of the city by throwing in two divisions, while ordering the LOG Lugov Defensive Group and the now even weaker 48th Army, pushed mostly to the south, to engage in counterattacks. Yet, for many reasons, mostly due to faulty communications and logistics, these attempted reversals never took place. As the 12th Panzer and 20th Motorized Divisions had the most success, they were followed by three infantry divisions, which allowed those men to capture Tonso and Emga and reach the Neva River on August 29th, which flows from Lake Ladoga west and through Leningrad to the Gulf of Finland. German forces were now some 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, from the southeast corner of the city. While the 12th Panzer and 20th Motorized were having their successes, the 18th Motorized moved east and was about to cut off the last rail line running east out of Leningrad. They were also pushing the Soviet defenders in front of them further and further apart. This movement allowed the 28th Army Corps to suddenly turn west from their more northern position and make for the city proper, though still southeast of Leningrad. The Soviet defenders in front of them were now pushed to the Izhora River, which feeds into the Neva, just to the southeast of the city. This took the Germans from August 30th to September 8th, but the noose was tightening. The soldiers on the ground and the Stavka realized this and pushed back hard after reorganizing themselves, which allowed them to stop the Germans from coming any closer to the city. For now. Popov then ordered the area south of the city to reorganize around Major General Lazaro's 55th Army and for the 42nd Army under Ivanov to better defend the area to the east. To further upset the Germans' desire to ring the city, Popov also ordered the 48th Army, now weaker than ever before, to join up with a NKVD rifle division and recapture Emga, just to the south of Lagoda's bottom left corner. The reinforced and resurrected 48th did as they were ordered on August 30th, but the 20th motorized returned the very next day to retake the city. Now the Germans had the momentum in their favor. On September 8th, though it did take a week of fighting, the 20th motorized, backed up by the 12th panzer, took two cities on the southern coast of Ladoga. And with that, the deed was done. The next day, the OKW declared that the Iron Ring around Leningrad has been closed. It was the beginning of the blockade. Now that the city, Hitler's objective in the north, was surrounded by enemy forces, the people and soldiers of Leningrad could only receive supplies via the lake or by air. The German ring was complete, but it was rather thin in places. The Germans did not control the area to the south of Lake Ladoga, but when the Russians moved in to secure it for themselves, they were completely destroyed. Thus, nothing was achieved by the Stavka, and the ring became that much thicker to the southeast of Leningrad.
Yet having achieved this monumental task, there was one man in Berlin who had had enough. Franz Halder, chief of the OKH staff, wrote in his diary at this point that Hitler had decided that Leningrad would become a subsidiary theater of operations. The Fuhrer had decided he had lost enough men from Army Group North. There would be no invasion of the city, no house-to-house fighting, no war of attrition, not against Russia. No, the people and soldiers inside would be allowed to starve to death, and only then would the Germans enter. Besides, Hitler's and Halder's eyes were being drawn to Army Group Center and their success. Now that they had passed Minsk, the Bielestock keel was destroyed, and the Minsk keel was expected to go the same way. It was time, according to Hitler's Directive Number 35, to march on Moscow. It was time to commence Operation Typhoon. But, as we have already seen, by the time the Panzers made their way east of Smolensk, they had suffered significant casualties in men and machines. Their logistics were starting to look like the Russians, and their infantry were exhausted. Before too long, Hitler would change his mind again and stop the march on Moscow and focus on the activities of Army Group North and Army Group South. Back at Leningrad, the terror began for its people on September 4th, as 240mm guns started shelling the city proper. On September 8th, those guns were joined by German bombers during the day. And now was the time for the Finnish to truly fulfill their destiny as Hitler's partner. But that was not happening. From June 22nd to July 10th, the Finns, as we have seen, attacked the Russians fiercely, but within a limited scope. They just wanted their territory back. After July 10th, these satisfied Finns focused on the Soviet 7th Army to the east of Lake Ladoga to make sure they, the Russians, did not try to retake Finnish territory. Yet Hitler was convinced he could move them to his will. And that was it. Leningrad would fall, the German thinking was. The ring had to be tightened, of course. The Russians would try to stop them, of course, and die for their efforts. The city would be squeezed. The Russian soldiers attempting to help would be killed or captured. A win-win-win for Berlin. The North was finally secure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.